You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 2, Episode 17. Hello, I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. If I ask most people to name an up-and-coming higher education system, one not from a wealthy country, but maybe from a, the middle-income zone, people would probably naturally speak about China. And they'd probably be right. China's higher education system has achieved remarkable things in the half century since it was reconstructed after the Cultural Revolution. But how many could name a second? Well, let me give you my answer. It's Malaysia. Malaysia is not well known outside Southeast Asia, but in fact, it has five reasonably good research universities, four of which teach in English. It has a highly diversified institutional landscape covering both publics and privates and some fairly interesting quasi-publics. It also covers both degree and sub-degree level institutions. It's been a leader in internationalization in higher education, having been one of the first countries in the region both to encourage large influxes of international students, mainly from the Indian Ocean region, but also the first to allow foreign campuses to set up on its soil. It's also one of the rare developing countries to make major use of student loans as a means of student financing, something that's even more impressive when you consider the loan system has to work under the principles of Islamic banking. Today, my guest is Dr. Morshidi Sirat. He's one of Malaysia's most experienced higher education observers and policymakers. Over the last two decades, he's been a dean, a vice chancellor, advisor to the Minister of Higher Education, director general of higher education for Malaysia, and the founding director of Malaysia's Commonwealth Tertiary Education Facility. In our discussion, he guides us through the ins and outs of Malaysia's success over many decades of higher education investment. He credits it all in part to good old-fashioned strategic planning, something Malaysians are really good at. But he also points to a widely shared national belief in the power of education to drive development, something which has underpinned both the government's political commitment to the sector and the relatively high levels of public spending that universities have enjoyed. But enough from me. Let's listen to Dr. Morshidi. Dr. Morshidi, I want to talk about the system as a whole, and it's a fairly complex system. At the top of the system, Malaysia has five serious research universities. University Kabangsan Malaysia, Science Malaysia, Putra Malaysia, Technology Malaysia, and of course the flagship University Malaya in Kuala Lumpur. That pretty much makes Malaysia the dominant higher education system in Southeast Asia. I don't think there's any other countries in the region that have that density of research intensity. How did these universities emerge as beacons of research excellence? Okay, thank you, Alex. Yeah, uh, it is by design. It's not by accident. When we established or we launched the National Education Strategic Plan, the idea was to improve various aspects of the, the Malaysian higher education system in terms of research, innovation, commercialization, talent, and our ability to attract talent from abroad, international students. So in 2005, we come up, came up with the concept plan for the establishment of research university system. That's where things got, got developed into the establishment of research university, research intensive universities at that time among the five oldest universities. So it is a carefully planned strategy. So there was a general plan to advance these five universities, but there were also two specific plans for two specific universities. So University Science Malaysia received something called APEX status, which allowed it more flexibility in rules and governance. 
And University Malaya was the site of the high impact research program, which provided it with hundreds of millions of ringgit for advanced research. What was the spur for those two specific excellence programs to create very specific poles of excellence? And to what extent did they succeed in their aims? Okay, this EPEX initiative, the solution of excellence in the education in Malaysia has its its uh, conceptual uh, origin from the German higher education system. So when we are open up the bid for the Apex program, various universities applied for the program. And we look finally at two universities. That is University of Science Malaysia and Penang and University of Malaya. So when we look at their proposals, it seems that USM is very bold in terms of trying to do things differently. Whereas University Malaya is more on the conventional type of pathway where they are into ranking, into mm -hmm. publication, into research. But USM, for short for University Science, is not into ranking. It is about excellence in terms of sustainability, in terms of bringing community to the normal mainstream of development. It's about the poor, the bottom uh, 40 billion, the bottom billions and all of that. So we just, we realized that while they are bidding for the same program, but they have different DNA. So that's where Apex USM was selected because we are looking for something beyond ranking, beyond publication, beyond research for research, but research for the, the good of the community. That's where the program evolved, yeah? yeah? You're talking about administrative flexibility governance, yeah? It's not really the governance that we're hoping for because we are still under the Ministry of Education or mm -hmm. Higher Education now. We are still civil servant. We are still, uh, we, we still have to subscribe to the Ministry of Finance and Treasury Regulation. So one and we have autonomy in terms of selection of students, in terms of how we use the money, the resources, in terms of the program. We still need, we still need to follow central government procedures. I used to call it pseudo-autonomy. It's not full autonomy that we're hoping for. Let me ask you about another very unique institution in, in Malaysia, and that is University Technology Mara. So that's 150,000 students spread across 35 campuses. That's a very big institution. And a specific mandate to serve the Malay and indigenous populations, or what's known as Bumiputra in Malaysia. So from a policy perspective, I'm curious, why one big university rather than a lot of little ones? And why the exclusive focus on Bumiputra? Firstly, they are thinking about the University of California system. Basically, it's, a, it's one system, University uh, but you have all the campuses, which each of these campuses have their own rectors. They have a, a little bit of autonomy to run their own campus. Yeah. So it's a system, a university system with uh, constituent entities within that system. So it's huge, but that's how they want to develop systems so that they have a central system which govern everything, but then there is, there will be autonomy each, each. Uh, of the individual campuses. Yeah, it's huge, it's big, it needs a lot of money, but that is the way they think that they can roll out the agenda for 
Bumiputra effectively. Why Bumiputra? Why not opening to other races, other ethnic groups? Yes, opening, but at the postgraduate level. They are opening to international students, they're opening for other groups. But at the undergraduate level, diploma level, it is the, the aim is to affect the social condition of Bumiputra in terms of employment opportunities, in terms of skills. Because if you look at the Sabah and Sarawak, and uh, remote areas in Penus Peninsula, Malaysia, is the Muiputra, they are well, way behind, without skills, low income. So that is, that is and was the original idea of the establishment of ITM at the time, the Institute of Technology Mara, to give skills and opportunity for the, uh, the Muiputra who are, who are rather backward in, terms, in economic terms at that time. Yeah. In a similar vein, there's the issue about the division between public and private universities in Malaysia, because public institutions, not exclusively, but they tend to serve and be run by Malays, not like I say, not exclusively, but to a large extent, while the private sector tends to be run by and serve the Chinese population to a lesser extent, Indians as well. My understanding is this policy is rooted in policies from the 1960s and 1970s, which are about financial and political empowerment for the Malay people. My question is, is this likely to change anytime soon? Or do you think this is a permanent feature of the Malaysian system? Some years back, we have tried to point when I was in the ministry at the time, we appointed non-Bumi at the next level, that's the deputy vice chancellor. There were Indian deputy vice chancellor, were Chinese and so on and so on. The previous government have tried, they appointed a Muslim Chinese vice chancellor in one of the universities in Borneo, that's the University of Malaysia, Sapa. We have tried, yes, we have tried. Mm -hmm. But the acceptance at, not within the university, but at the ministerial and at the central agency level, there are, there are more, more at ease dealing with um, a vice chancellor is, who is a Malay or Muslim, whatever. But now with the with this with this unity government who is a government which is about Wow, maybe five, six years or earlier than that, we will see that coming. It depends on the government now, whether they are serious about reforming the whole system. Yeah. If they are serious, then probably three or four years down the road, we'll see a non-vice-chancellor in University of Malaya, for example, in uh, USA or in UPM. But the regional universities may be difficult because they have the regional kind of aspiration that it's to be met. Whereas Simlaya is about international aspiration that could fit well into a non vimiputra kind of uh, agenda. That's interesting. So you're saying that there might be changes in terms of the management of universities. What about the students they serve? As student, if, if you look at why we introduced the loan, I'll talk about it later, is to enable non non Bumiputra student to enter private university because they're judging very high tuition fees at the time. So yep. the loan was yep. introduced, if you remember, is to help them to enter private universities. But uh, the idea was a private university, while it was originally for the non Bumiputra, but we have moved away from that. Private university is uh, about an international student who have a lot of capacity to, to allow international students to come in, whereas the public universities, the undergraduate program is about the Malaysians, yeah, the Malaysian students. It's not 
exactly right now, public university is for Bimputra and private university is for the Chinese or for the Indian. You have uh, a significant number of Malays now, well-to-do Malays who are sending mm -hmm. the children to private universities because of employability, because of the relevance of the program. In a private university, they can change the program very fast according to the changes in the employment scenario, not in the public university. If you look at some of the major private universities now, you will see uh, a large portion of uh, Putra who are from the well-to-do family. Okay, that's the first. The second thing is, you'll see now in many of the big private universities, the CEO or the president are no more Chinese. They are Malays. So that is that change now coming in. But we still need to see the change in the public university, in that sense. While the changes already in the private top management system, in that sense. Got it. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Generative artificial intelligence has taken the higher education sector by storm since the release of ChatGPT at the end of 2022. Since then, many post-secondary institutions have been working to develop their response to this new technology. At HESA, we've developed a database of institutional policies, statements, and guidelines that are being developed across the country and all around the world. Need an extra hand with developing your own institutional response to Gen AI? We can help. Reach out to our team to discuss ways in which we could support your efforts. And we're back. Dr. Marshidi, you know, one, one area where I think Malaysia was well ahead of international trends was in internationalization. It was among the first countries to welcome big international branch campuses, most notably from the United Kingdom and Australia, and more recently China as well. But it was also one of the first newly industrialized countries to put a heavy emphasis on recruiting international students, most notably from Iran and East Africa. What was it that made Malaysia such a pioneer in these areas? Okay, first, we have the policy in place in 2011. Oh, before that, we already, the private sector, were already recruiting international students to fill up the capacity that they have. They have excess mm -hmm. capacity in the private sector. And we saw that there were opportunity to increase our national income through international students, yeah? So based on that, that development, we introduced in 2011, the national, or what you call it, the inter internationalization policy in 2011. That's guided in a more designed and planned way, how we recruit students, how we manage international students, and how we regulate fees and other other aspect of international student in Malaysia. So it's a more structured, more designed engagement, recruitment, and things like that. And when I was at the ministry, we established the Education Malaysia Global Services, which process international students coming to Malaysia. That's a very well-thought-of system in order to recruit international students in Malaysia. And we broaden the market beyond uh, Iran, beyond uh, Africa, we are now into basic China. Yeah, that is a major market, China and India, Indonesia. We are targeting about 150,000 uh, by the end of 2027. 20, uh, so it's a planned thing, yeah? It's a very well-planned thing in order to improve our system. 
So yet another area where I think Malaysia has been a leader, certainly within Asia, is in developing a functioning large-scale student aid system, which goes by the acronym of PTPTN. It's also an anomalous case in the sense that it serves an Islamic country, but its loans still carry an effective interest rate, although they go under the euphemistic term of administration charges. What made Malaysia go down this road? And how well is PTPTN functioning these days in terms of loan recovery? Okay, everything about Malaysia is a duality. You have the conventional, you have the Islamic banking, insurance, everything else in Malaysia is about duality. Yeah, so Bumi Putra, non Bumi Putra, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So in, when we started PTN, we were not using the interest rate because it's very sensitive, yeah. but we use administrative rates. Uh, in fact, in many of the government loans, even in the, uh, among civil servants, they use administrative rates, yeah? not interest rate. Because right. administrative rate does not cover interest rate exactly. It is right. below interest rate. But now we have introduced uh, a system called Ujra, which is 1%, which is further below the administrative rate. So mm -hmm. that is the Islamic component. So you can choose whether you want to stay with the administrative rate, which is 4%, or you move to the 1% uh, Ujra system, which is okay. purely Sharia compliant system. Yeah. Interesting. Now okay. you're asking me whether it's performing or not. We are, the last time I heard, reported in the, in, in the system, we were able to collect only about 50% of those loans. So they introduced a lot of discounts, a lot of other things, a lot of sticks and carrot kind of thing yeah. in order to make people pay. Uh, but now it's around 50, 51% payment rate. I can say there's a problem there in terms of sustainability. Oh. But we have introduced uh, ways and means in order to, to make borrowers pay the loan through employers, through income tax, what we call the income contingent loan payment of things like that. So there, there are moves in order to recover, to improve those recovery, recovery payment rates. Yeah? yeah, interesting. I want to go back a few years now to around 2016, where if I'm not mistaken, there were some pretty significant cuts uh, to government transfers to universities but without any compensating change to tuition fee policy. And if I'm not mistaken, tuition fee policies have been more or less frozen for two decades, three decades. It's been a long time. How did institutions respond to these changes? Was it widespread cutbacks? What happened uh, at the institutional level? Okay, they had to cut back on unnecessary expenditure. Yeah. But they were given the leeway to increase income through other means. So we have many of the public universities have what you call the private arm or the holdings, yeah? It's a private holding, it's a private arm where they can get income in order to cover the, the gaps between mm -hmm. what the government gives and what they need to spend. So many of the universities have their own holdings in order to generate income, yeah? Now, in universities that have medical faculties, they are allowed to start a private medical facility, we right. charge the full rate. So that covers the, med the, the we call cross-subsidy cross in that sense. You charge high yeah. for private arm, and then you cover the back with the subsidy into the other sector. So that's how they, they deal with the gaps. But problem is, involvement in public university is still very high. Yeah, the involvement, the payment, yeah. the salary of the professors and all is very high. Trying to cover that with whatever income they can generate is very difficult. So recruitment tends to be slow. Uh, um, 
uh, lecturers, promotion of lecturers and so on and so forth tend to be muted over time because of the resources constraint. Yeah. I'm not saying that they are able to overcome this problem now. Over time, they keep on saying that if we're not doing anything, we're going to be bankrupt or something like that. So the problem is there. I'm not saying that when a government cut, they are able to do many things. It's still not able to cope with that kind of cuts. Yeah? Alex, it's a, lot. it's a big cut for big universities. Like UITM, we spend billion a year. 30% uh, or 10% cuts means a lot of money there. Yeah. Yeah? They are trying to do their best through other means. Increase of international students is one agenda there. Interesting. So the big one big sort of earthquake that happened politically in, in Malaysia was the election of 2018. Mm -hmm. And for the first time since independence, the Barisan Nacional lost power. And since then, power swung back and forth between the BN coalition and the currently governing uh, Pakatan Harapan coalition or PH coalition led by Anwar Ibrahim. You've yeah. had four different prime ministers in the past six years. How has this affected higher education policy? Do the two coalitions have significant differences with respect to higher education policy? And if so, what are the areas of greatest contrast? No, not much. Not much. We have we are shifting between prime ministers and government. There's not much changes in higher education policy. We see changes in education policy, but not higher education. Because higher education is much left to the universities. Universities are public statutory bodies, they are allowed, in a word, to determine how they move forward, yeah? But the only two major changes that the universities are being pressured to, one is the introduction of artificial intelligence now, which universities are very slow to take up because it requires some investment, yeah? yeah. The second part is graduate employability. They're saying that Graduates from universities are employed because you have not responded well to the changes in the employment system. Yeah. These are the main, the two main pressures that, that the university have to take down. Different government will look at the role of universities differently. But basically, they agree that uh, universities have a role to play in talent development, in human resource development, in, in uh, research, in commercialization. Mm -hmm. They have not changed much in the context of those areas. Yeah, they are pronouncement in terms of changes, but when you want to implement it, they realize that they are constrained, not from the universities, yeah, but from the central agencies, because there are still rules and regulations that makes it difficult to implement those changes. Last question: I know Malaysians take strategic planning very seriously. I've I go into bookstores all over the world and I've never seen strategic planning sec sections as big as the ones that I've seen in, in Malaysian bookstores. The, the current 10-year education blueprint, which is a, a kind of a strategic plan, ends uh, next year, if I'm not mistaken. And yes. I assume some kind of new multi-year plan is in the works. What do you think will be the key elements of this next plan? Okay. We are reviewing the plan this year. And after reviewing the plan, there'll be a new plan. I will anticipate there will be different things because we have different minister now. If we have previous minister now and we're reviewing the plan, so we'll see something that's uh, moving forward, previous agenda, what we have not done or whatever. But since we have a new minister, 
obviously he may want to have his own legacy. We may find new things. But one thing that we have indication from Prime Minister himself is the, the adoption of AI. So I think the blueprint will have a good section on how AI should be adopted in the Malaysian higher education system. I think that's the major one. And again, that would probably make Malaysia a, a leader. It would make it unique in the world because yes. I don't know anybody yes. else thinking about that stuff. Maybe actually one last question, if I may. What makes you most optimistic about higher education in Malaysia? What do you think is the, what are the aspects of it that make you think this is going to bring our country to the next level over the next decade or two? Okay, I've seen other higher education system in, in ASEAN, for example. They have not, except Singapore, yeah, I put Singapore, yeah. but within the ASEAN countries. I've worked in, I've assisted Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam in terms of their higher education plan. I've, I have not seen a system that's planned and designed with all the ingredients compared to the one in Malaysia. But I'm not talking about how well they implemented, yeah, Alex? Uh, don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. We have all the documents, we have the plan. Implementation is another thing. But with the kind of exposure that we have among international students, I'm still hopeful that uh, we, we are still the hub for higher education among the international recruitment. Yeah. Secondly, while many academics will say that our universities are being pressured, our universities are being controlled by the government, uh, but actually there are a lot of autonomy being given to universities uh, compared to other universities in the ASEAN region. And thirdly, we believe in education. We believe in higher education. That's basically this. We are the first to, to, to attract international branch campus in Malaysia because we believe in good quality education. And we have in place agencies that they have been assigned to be, to be in control or to monitor each aspect of this quality of learning and education in Malaysia that assure that if things are implemented accordingly, the quality of education can be maintained in a sense. Yeah? But obviously, the government is a pro-education government. The government which is pro-higher education will move forward the higher education agenda in the next few years. That's why I'm very confident about how things should be moving, will be moving in the next few years. Thank you so much for joining us today. And it just remains for me to thank our excellent producers, Sam Pufek and Tiffany McLennan, and of course you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you have any comments on the podcast or suggestions for new episodes, please don't hesitate to contact us at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week when our guest will be André Sursac, uh, who among her many titles is a senior advisor at the European University Association. And she'll be joining us to discuss the complicated world of French higher education and how the sector has fared over the past six years under the government of Emmanuel Macron. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek. Hosted by Alex Usher. Music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.